So hello and welcome to episode number six of Hidden Ecologies. Now it's been a bit of a while since I've released any episodes but there's been quite a bit of stuff going on and I'm gonna be preparing shortly to leave on a couple of cool expeditions for the summer which you can read about on Instagram. So in this episode I'm talking with Jack Walker who's a member of the research group The Funky Ants Lab at Liverpool University. He's currently working on his PhD assessing the resilience of insects in urban environments. We had a fascinating conversation about the future of urban biodiversity and the potential for insects to help our current sustainability crisis. If you'd like to read more about Jack's work, check out the links in the episode description. And with that, I hope you enjoy. This is Hidden Ecologies. Jack, why urban insects? Why not woodlands or forest or jungle meadow insects? Why specifically urban insects? Okay, so urban environments are really, really cool, partly because very few people are looking at it comparatively to other kinds of habitats. Um, so, you know, when most people think about wildlife and biodiversity, they're probably not thinking about the stuff that's on the doorstep. Yeah, so it, researching urban areas is really, really important, regardless of what uh, taxonomic groups you're looking at, whether you're looking at insects or mammals or birds or whatever. Uh, it's really, really important because it's where most people, at least in, in developed countries and increasingly around the world, where most people live. So why are we protecting biodiversity if not for people, which is a really big part of why we do cons conservation is for people, including people in conservation. You know, a lot of the issues that wildlife face in urban areas, uh, which maybe we can talk about in a bit, are also issues that people face. So addressing issues of biodiversity in urban areas also addresses a lot of issues for people. And why insects within the urban ecology literature, most of that is looking at vertebrates. And then within the literature of invertebrates in urban areas, most of that is kind of looking at pollinators. So my research is focusing on insects in urban areas and other processes besides pollination that they take part in. Brilliant. I'll ask you more about those processes in a minute. But just talk to me about some of your previous research, just to give like a, um, a bit of background to any listeners. I was reading a paper that you were working on and you, you discovered that urban canals are actually quite high biodiversity hotspots. Yeah, so that was a paper that I wrote uh, a couple of years ago. Canals are really, really cool. Very few people... Are researching those um, as habitat and they have this kind of potential to be really valuable because in urban areas you're then kind of uh, by definition removing whatever habitat is is there in the first place you're removing that replacing it with places for people to live for example canals are a part of the urban landscape particularly in the, in the uk we've got loads of canals all over the country so if we can manage those or at least you know monitor them and look at their biodiversity, perhaps they could be really, really valuable habitat because we're not really getting rid of them, they're not going anywhere, like a lot of other freshwater habitats. And as I say, yeah, no one's really paying attention to what's living in them. Could you just define a canal? Because in my mind, it's a sort of a straight man-made river. Yeah, pretty much. In terms of their ecology and hydrology, they're quite interesting in that, you know, a river flows in one direction and a canal also does that, but in a kind of a different way. So in a canal, you have locks, which kind of cut the canal into sections. Um, and those will open and close. They're, they're essentially gates that hold, you know, that hold water. So just kind of maintain the water at a level, whereas a river will always flow downhill. So what that does, it 
from an ecological perspective, it means that when the locks are all closed, you have essentially, instead of a flowing water body, you have a chain of ponds. So it's kind of like a linear standing water body. And then when you open the lock, it starts to, the water starts to flow again, like a river. So it's almost like this endless cycle of habitat fragmentation and then reconnection. Yeah, kind of. So that was one of the interesting things that we found in that study was that invertebrate communities that were separated by locks were slightly different. So you have um, a slightly different composition of animals on one side of the gate to the other. Oh, that's, that's so interesting. Now, just going back to urban insects, how do they differ from normal insects? Have you noticed any observable differences in their sort of morphology or physiology? So it's difficult to comment on at the moment because that's what, basically that's what my research is looking into. So hopefully in a couple of years time, I'll have an answer for you. But we can make some predictions uh, based on the different environmental issues that urban uh, insects have to deal with. So there are kind of four major environmental factors that, that separate urban uh, urban landscapes from their surrounding rural landscapes. So the first is habitat loss and fragmentation. So as I said before, by definition, when you're creating an urban area, you're taking the habitat that's there in the first place and you're clearing that and replacing it with roads and buildings and, and all that sort of thing. And then the habitats that are left, or if you're creating anything like parks and that sort of thing, are going to be more fragmented. So in other words, they're less connected to each other. Anything that lives there is going to have to travel further to reach another patch of green space, or it might not be able to at all if it's too fragmented. Um, the second issue is the urban heat island effect. So urban areas are typically made up of lots of impervious surfaces. So those are surfaces that, that water can't penetrate through. So things like tarmac uh, and concrete. So, you know, your roads, your buildings, that sort of thing. And those surfaces absorb heat throughout the day. And then after they've absorbed all that heat, they then start to release it again as well, which means that urban areas can be sort of one to three degrees Celsius warmer than their surrounding countryside. That increase in temperature is another thing that the animals and plants have to deal with. Third is pollution. So that can be anything from air pollution from cars, water pollution, um, but also things that maybe people don't tend to think about as much, like light pollution, noise pollution, all can be significantly higher in urban areas. And the fourth is invasive species. So typically invasive species do much better in urban areas. If you go to any city, you'll typically see plants and animals that are not natively from that, that part of the world. So there are kind of two, two parts to it. The first is that um, usually if, it, if a species arises in a new part of the world that it's not native to, it's been brought there by humans, uh, whether that's in, um, intentionally or not. Um, so it could be that people planting non-native plant species in the gardens and then it escapes and becomes widespread. It could be something that's stowed away on a cargo ship or something like that. Um, so invasive species typically have a way in to urban areas because, because that's where people bring them to. Um, and the second is that what makes typically makes a invasive species successful is that they can survive in a wide range of environments and make use of a wide range of different resources. So if you take a habitat and convert it into an urban area, typically the species that are native to that habitat won't be able to live, that any, live there anymore. So you're creating kind of a clean, homogenous slate that um, invasive species can then take advantage of. So you'll find that cities all over the world, no matter where they are, 
uh, pretty homogenous habitats, you'll find the same kinds of features all over the world, which means that the same kind of animals and plants can live there. So they're really, really ideal places for invasive species to thrive. I guess the animal that first springs to mind when people think of urban species in the UK anyway is the fox, which is just, mm. they're, they're everywhere. Like I live in Falmouth, which is a small, relatively small urban area. And yeah, like if you go out at night, you happily see several foxes in a week. Exactly. Yeah. If you are an organism that can make use of the food that people eat, an urban area is the best place to be. There's loads of it. Relating back to insects again, in terms of the evolution you're looking at, I'm guessing the insects that have got the preferable morphology and physiology and behavioural patterns, they're the ones that are going to survive and pass on their genes in these urban environments. And do you think there's any chance that sooner rather than later, maybe, we're going to start seeing some speciation and see some urban insect species appear? Potentially, yeah. There's some evidence, especially in birds, there's, there's some evidence that there are urban species or subspecies of blackbirds evolving that have, you know, they're better at, uh, at feeding from, you know, uh, from bird feeders than, you know, looking for insects and seeds and that kind of thing. Urbanization does have this effect of kind of accelerating evolution. If you think of the classic example of the peppered moth, which I'm sure any anyone who studied you know, biology at, at high school is, is familiar with where you have a moth that has a variable colour and if it's in an area with lots of pollution it'll blend in with black um with um if it has darker colours and if it's a, an area with less pollution it'll blend in with lighter colours so yeah that is a potential thing that could happen the other kind of thing that you could expect to see is that um the species that are already um predisposed to being able to survive in urban areas are the ones that you see and the ones that you can't that, that aren't um, able to survive those differences in, in environmental variables just aren't there. Um, so you could have one or the other, or, yeah, might be a combination of the two, really. Sure. And how much does um, how much do circadian rhythms play an important role in adaptation to cities? Because you mentioned about light evolution, um, sorry, light pollution, and I was reading a paper on how blackbird breeding seasons are changing um, due to street lighting. Yeah, I'm not too familiar with the literature around circadian rhythms in urban areas, so I wouldn't be able to say too much about that. I know with insects, the big issue with light pollution is that a lot of insects are attracted to artificial light, um, which means that they're really easy pickings for insectivorous birds and bats and that kind of thing. If you think if you've ever been to a country where there are geckos, you're sat, you know, sat outside a bar or a cafe that's got a, an artificial light, there'll always be geckos around there because they're picking up all the moths and, and flies and things that are hanging around. In terms of circadian rhythms, I'm really, yeah, I'm not too sure on that. Sure. So if they can avoid causing their own extinction, um, urban insects are likely to be a fairly competitive species or subspecies. Yeah. I mean, if you're a, if you're a moth that is genetically predisposed to not be attracted to artificial light, you're probably you know, going to do pretty well. Slightly off the topic of the evolution of insects. I was actually writing an essay for, um, for some university work all about insects as a potential food source for humans. What What's your stance mm. on that? Do you think it's sustainable? Do you think it's ethical? Oh, I, I really like that you've asked me this because I'm at the moment reading a book. Um, I'll you one second, it's on my bed. It just oh yeah, go on, grab it. <laughs> it's called Insects and Edible Field Guide by Stefan Gates. I have heard of that one actually, I've seen that. <laughs> So good. Um, it get, basically goes through every continent and goes through some different different insects and other arthropods and other invertebrates that are good to eat. 
Yeah, so it's, it's really, really interesting. Uh, you said stepping aside from, from urbanisation, but a good thing about producing insects as food is that you can do it anywhere. It doesn't have to be in the countryside, like if you're growing crops or, or large animals for livestock. Um, you can grow them in your shed or, you know, indoors. So in terms of reducing, diversifying the kinds of places that we produce food, insects are really, really good. Um, in terms of sustainability, I mean, there's loads of stats that you can really easily find in terms of producing them uses way less land and water and food than producing any other kind of meat really and also you can feed them human food waste as well which makes them really really ideal for reducing food waste and reducing the amount of land that we dedicate to growing fodder crops i think the only thing to watch out for is i think as with a lot of quote-unquote solutions to sustainability issues uh, is not to look at this in isolation and say that oh yeah this is the answer to our issue of feeding ourselves um of feeding ourselves sustainably I think it has to be part of a much, a very small part of a much broader uh, change in the way we think about food. But yeah, I think it's a really, really exciting idea. Yeah, for sure. Have you heard of the um, the farm in London called EntoCycle? No, I haven't. So it's this new farm they've set up in London within like the you know past couple of years, I think. And basically they have, I think it's brown crickets is, is what they have. They feed them on old coffee grounds and waste from breweries and create them into edible products for humans. And I thought that was such a cool idea because with more and more of the world being urbanized, it's harder and harder for people living, especially in the inner cities, to get access to good quality organic food. I mean, like crickets contain something like 65% protein, which is just off the scale in terms of animal animal proteins. Um, So yeah, I thought it was like such a cool solution because it's not only combating waste, but it's also giving a much more sustainable, I mean, you mentioned about, you know, less water used, less space, space used, um, it's more way more sustainable than say cattle farming but yeah again i can't you can't use that as a blanket rule yeah and it's also i think important again, again this is a small part of it but diversifying the kinds of foods we're eating is really important as well in terms of sustainability and thinking about climate change and how that's going to affect the way that we can produce food you know if we're really dependent on a really small group of food sources like we are at the moment if anything happens to any one of those you know if it's a a crop disease or, or something like that that causes major major issues whereas if we're uh, diversifying the different kinds of foods we eat by incorporating things like insects or, or anything else it's a it gives us a bit more of a buffer to anything like that that could happen in the future yeah diversification needs a much bigger emphasis is what i feel in terms of our resource use in terms of potential to combat human waste where do you see insects as a potential player in that so it's interesting because obviously insects perform quite a lot of different processes within within their ecosystems and one of these is uh, resource assimilation or waste removal so if if you have um, animal carcasses or feces or anything like that it's going to be insects and other invertebrates that are doing a lot of the cleanup work and in urban areas in particular if you go out on a saturday night you'll probably see you know, burgers and hot dogs and kebabs and that kind of thing, strewn about the streets that people have dropped and chips, you know. Insects could potentially be a really important group of organisms for tackling that um, in terms of, you know, if you think of it as, as litter, essentially. Uh, insects and other, other organisms are really important for that kind of scavenging process for taking, taking those resources away. You mentioned at the beginning of this interview that you're looking at processes other than pollination and obviously waste recycling is another ecosystem service what are, what are the other ones that you're looking at 
So, so scavenging is actually the, the primary one that I'm looking at. So mm -hmm. one experiment I have planned for the coming summer is to put out uh, some different resources, which could be a mix of things that insects are likely to come across in urban areas, like, like as I say, you know, processed meat and that kind of thing, uh, crisps, chips, and other things that they might be more likely to come across in more quote-unquote natural environments, like insects and, and seeds and that kind of thing. And see, A, how much... Uh, what the rate of scavenging is across that kind of gradient of urban to rural. Does the rate of scavenging change between different resource types? So, for example, if you're in an urban area, are the insects kind of looking out for those more processed anthropogenic food sources because that's what they're used to? And C, what are the, you know, what's the role, relative role of invertebrates in this process? So, obviously, invertebrates aren't the only things that scavenge. You know, you have mammals and birds and essentially any taxa that can make, make use of anything that, that anyone's dropped, really. So you can kind of compare the two by putting some of your resources in exclusion cages, is what we call them. So it's um, essentially a mesh cage that only invertebrates can get into. And then you have some of your resources just out in the open. You can subtract one from the other to look at how much uh, the vertebrates are eating and how much the invertebrates are eating. Uh, so that's something that I've got planned for the summer. Oh, it's awesome. a yeah it's a, it's a kind of standard method but it's not used that much in urban areas i was gonna say i've only ever heard of it being sort of used in like either uk meadows or woodland or like tropical jungles so that's that's really good to hear that it's been kind of old methods are being resurrected for new environments yeah um so my my lab group my research group mostly mostly works with invertebrates in tropical and subtropical areas so a lot of um my colleagues are working with ants and termites and savannas. And this is uh, a method that's been used a lot in my research group in African savannas. Yeah, I saw uh, on one of the links you sent me that your research group is called the Funky Ant Lab. And I just thought that Funky was the coolest thing. So as a bit more of a broader, more general question, what are the prerequisites for an urban area or a city or town or even a village to support a decent level of biodiversity long-term? And what can people do to help this? Great question, love this. So um, as I said before, there are those four kind of issues that um, are a threat to biodiversity in urban areas. So counteracting each of those um, issues is more broadly what we can do to improve biodiversity in urban areas. So allowing more connectivity between existing green spaces, which will in turn reduce the urban heat island effect. So, you know, if you have green walls and green roofs and kind of replace those impervious, impervious surfaces with green space, you're going to reduce fragmentation and reduce the temperature as well. And then having more functioning ecosystems will then reduce pollution as well. So it all kind of ties together. I mean, you, know, you can you can list you know, several, several different things that can be done on a large scale, like removing certain types of vehicles from urban areas, which some cities are starting to do. I believe you can't drive a diesel car in Amsterdam, for example. Oh, really? I didn't, yeah, I didn't realise that, but it doesn't, doesn't surprise me if you're always ahead of us in this kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, and I'd, I'd have to double check um, the dates and the specifics on it, but I'm sure I saw a news story recently saying that Paris is going to be banning cars entirely from its city centre. Oh, wow. Um, I'm not sure when that's going to come into effect or how how broad the area is, but things like that can really help to you know, re you know, reduce pollution and create more space for um, for biodiversity and all, as I said before all these things help people as well you know people shouldn't have to walk miles to reach green space and they shouldn't have to they should be able to sit in the shade when it's on a you know on a hot day and shouldn't have to 
deal with um, their children developing respiratory disease because the air is too polluted. So all these things are really, really important for biodiversity and for people. In terms of what people can do themselves, if you have a garden, there's tons of stuff you can do. So as I said before, with fragmentation, your garden is one of those fragmented habitats. And if you can make it better for biodiversity, so having lots of different features like long grass, um, a wildlife pond, uh, you know, wildflowers, pollinators, all these, these kinds of things, it's one more stepping stone in that fragmented landscape, if that makes sense. So if you, you and your neighbours are creating wildlife-friendly gardens, that means that organisms aren't having to travel as far between those different fragments. Do you just for our listeners describe or outline why habitat fragmentation is so bad in terms of sort of edge effects and community structure? Yeah, so generally if you have a small habitat, which doesn't necessarily mean it's fragmented, if you have a small habitat, it means that it's more prone to what's called edge effects, which means that the surrounding area around that habitat is something different, which may mean that there are different variables that the organisms within that habitat have to deal with. So it could be diseases, it could be, you know, if you think of a small park, there's probably going to be a road around it that organisms have to deal with. But if you think uh, from the perspective of, say, a blue tit, so or any, any small bird that's trying to feed its young, it's constantly collecting food for itself and for its young that it's trying to feed. If the habitats that is Uh, foraging in are fragmented it means it can spend less time foraging it has to spend more time traveling between foraging areas and all that time is really valuable if you're a small animal trying to collect as much food as possible so then if you think about that from the perspective of an even smaller animal if you're a five millimeter long beetle you know the couple of kilometers between two parts for example might as well be in different countries so you know it's an enormous space for an animal that size to travel so having as i say kind of stepping stones of habitats within between those spaces um, can make a really, really big difference for those organisms. Definitely. And I mean, it could be something as small as I, I read in um, our village newsletter, actually, that some residents had created a hedgehog tunnel through their garden fences just yeah. to stop that breakup of habitat, which I thought was awesome. Yeah, it's something that a lot of councils are now incorporating into new builds of houses is um, different features that can help wildlife. So hedgehog tunnels or hedgehog highways are often called. Um, is a really good way of doing that. So you have just a little hole uh, in your fence, and then instead of having to leave your garden, go onto the road, and then exit into another garden, um, a hedgehog can just go straight between the two. And if you have a hole that's big enough for a hedgehog, that's also big enough for frogs, for newts, for smaller mammals, for insects. Yeah, lots of small changes can go a long way. What else would you like to see with regards to urban planning? I'd love to see parks that are managed for biodiversity and not just lawns with a few scattered trees and a duck pond. Um, You know, having, as I say, patches of longer grass in areas, uh, wildlife friendly ponds, just, you know, good areas for biodiversity to thrive amongst people rather than just being places for people to sit down. You can have you can have both. I think the only other thing that I'd like to say is that people should appreciate the green spaces that are around them appreciate that they're there and if they aren't there think about why (laughs) and the fact that they should be you know if we can have more uh green walls green roofs better access to green spaces better for people better for wildlife and it's definitely the direction that we need to need to move in such an important message thank you so much jack i did actually have one more uh, slightly off the wall question yes (laughs) but What are some of the more extreme habitats that insects have been found in? Because I know we've obviously been talking about cities and woodlands a little bit, but I wasn't sure if there were sort of like volcanoes or glaciers. Um, So typically you don't 
find insects anywhere you find glaciers, anywhere where there's that kind of permafrost, um, you don't tend to find insects. I'd love to be proven wrong on that, but I, there's nothing that I'm aware of. Um, when you when you said that, obviously, I mean, this is just me being an urban ecologist, but the first thing that I thought of is the fact that you can find um, ants nesting in pavement cracks. I just think that's mad, you know? If you think about how niche that is, how um, kind of desolate an, an area that is, it's just a, a hard surface. And as I said, those hard surfaces um, absorb a lot of heat. So if you're an ant living in a pavement slab, if it's midday and you leave your nest, you're dealing with a huge temperature increase right out the bat. Um, so you've got to have a really high kind of upper thermal tolerance to deal with that. I think that's like a really, really good example of how adaptable and uh, resilient insects are. Yeah, I think it's such a good testament to the resilience of nature, um, especially in this day of homogenization and urban jungles everywhere. I think it's a really, it's a really important message of hope. Yeah, I agree. I think um, urban areas in general are good examples of that. The fact that you can create this completely different landscape and still so many organisms can thrive. Um, granted, as I say, we should be doing more to help help them do that and to allow more biodiversity to thrive in those areas. But the fact they can do it in the first place without us trying is just incredible. Absolutely. So where can people listening find out more about your work or follow you on social media? What are your handles? So um, I am on Instagram and Twitter at Insect in the City. Our research group website is uh, funkyant.weebleave.com. Brilliant handles. <laughs> they got <laughs> first, first prize in the handle competition of their awards one. <laughs> Jack, thank you so much for your time. It's been a fascinating chat. Thank you so much for having me. Mm-hmm.